0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week
1: from Washington, D.C. When we actually do things together, it feels really good and it, it feels hope. It feels like, you know what, I'm here with other people, my body's in motion, and I feel like we can do something rather than being at home, just feeling like the world is ending.
0: An outsized influence on our politics and culture continues to come from evangelical Christianity. Often news reports shorthand the agenda of conservative white evangelical Protestants as Christian, or even worse, people of faith. But thanks to a pair of recent books, we've got a chance to look at the historic and current influence of white Christian evangelicals and its connection to Christian nationalism plus what it means for our nation going forward. I have wanted to have Dr. Bradley Onishi on this show for a long time. His book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. It was released fittingly on January 6th. And Brad has firsthand experience with this movement and his book is both a comprehensive
2: history and a call to action. And Mm. when folks ran afoul of the gatekeepers, they got written out of the history books such that Mm. you never hear about this black evangelical movement or the evangelical feminist movement or that there were gay evangelicals because these folks have gotten written out of the story. Dr.
0: Isaac B. Sharp has just released The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. It's a book that explores the history of a movement that has gone through a stunning transformation on its way to consolidating power and influence. Looking at how many have been left behind exposes the essential flaws of today's political Christianity, but it also offers hope for reclaiming an authentic and inclusive form of the faith. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part because of the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, Brad Onishi is the host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast podcast. The most popular religion and politics podcast on Apple Podcast. His new book is titled "Preparing for War: The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes
1: Next." And I am glad he is with us today. Brad, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's uh, it's an honor to be here, and uh, always always happy to chat with you. Thank you.
0: Oh me too. Now let's uh, first of all I I just want to say like you landed on perhaps the best podcast name ever. <laughs> like I I mean how did that happen? Like it's so funny. And I you know, I mean my my guess is there's people out there who are like, "Oh great, that's the podcast for me." But I think <laughs> and then they listen to it and they're like, "Wait a second. Um but, but how did you come up with that? Like what what's the the genesis of that name?"
1: You know, it was it was deep in the the Trump years, 2018, and I I, I took a two hour drive to see my friend Dan Miller, who's my co-host, and and I said, Dan, you know, we're academics, but I think as former evangelicals, we have something to say, and I I think a lot of people in this country, uh, their problem comes down to the fact that they think Jesus was a straight white American guy driving a big truck and holding an automatic uh, rifle and voting Republican, and so um, let's try to figure that out uh, through a podcast and. You're exactly right, Paul. So I just the other day had uh, the Daily Wire uh, reach out uh, to see if they could Advertise on the show? Because I think they just thought, finally, somebody who worships a God, straight white American Jesus. Someone's Let's speaking it, you know. the
0: truth, right? <laughs> I mean, someone is is brave enough to speak the truth. And that's Brad Onishi, everyone. <laughs> no, it's so genius. And that is actually a great story. I love that. I mean, it's almost a, it's almost like you prank them. I mean, it's really, really good. But, you know, it also, like, it kind of leads us into... It leads us into you, your own background. I mean you this is not something that you've observed from afar. you You come out of this um, a very particular experience in American religion. I wonder if you can just take us there as a way of getting into your new book. like where you come from, how you came to um, be a part of this this culture and and how you view it now. but let, let's start with like where you come from.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, in Orange County, California, uh, made famous by various TV shows and all that stuff. Um, pretty middle-class family, you know, dad drove a Corolla, uh, that kind of, you know, going to a state park for vacation kind of stuff. Uh, he is Japanese American, my mom's white, and pretty non-religious household. But when I was 14, my my 14-year-old girlfriend, my eighth-grade girlfriend, invited me to a Wednesday night Bible study. By that time, I was a kind of punk who was getting in trouble and uh it was a mega church, and I think a lot of people out there don't imagine Southern California as this uh this kind of uh, religious landscape that it is, but uh you know where I grew up was really the Bible belt of Southern California, and this was just one of many mega churches in the area and I got hooked I got hooked on the guitars and the the young leaders with tattoos and the the fun youth group games and fast forward by the time I was twenty, I was a full time minister uh I got married to my high school sweetheart. And I started seminary pretty soon thereafter. So um, my conversion was really extreme. I can I can tell you stories about me being just a, a really weird little guy who uh, was a very zealous convert. But um, I stayed in the religion game after leaving evangelicalism and, and am now a religion professor and have been studying these things you know philosophically and historically for 20 years now. But yeah, it all goes back to uh, just getting invited to a Wednesday night Bible study and my mom saying, sure. You write, one of your
0: chapters is just so provocative, said, would I have been there? I might be getting a little bit wrong, but it's essentially posing this idea. I was close to being in the crowd on January 6th. That would not have been a stretch for me had I continued on the trajectory I was at. So in some ways, you're like being really honest, like this is not foreign. This is not totally other to you. Like, Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think these days uh there's a lot of space to talk about being an ex evangelical or ex LDS. You know, there's a communities, there's support groups, there's books. I it's a lot harder to come out and say, Hey, I, I used to be a, a Christian nationalist. And yeah, I think I maybe a white Christian nationalist. Um and but when I watched January sixth, that really clicked for me that yes, I've identified as an ex evangelical for a long time. But my church was one that uh had Christian nationalist elements such that there were people who uh were from my hometown from the church who were at january sixth and what i what I realized is all right, if this happens right around my conversion, if January sixth and the Trump years are right around my conversion, those are the years where I am zealous. I mean where I am willing to go all out. I am preparing for the rapture I am uh proselytizing every chance I get uh, i I write in the book that I would go to my flag uh, the flagpole outside of my high school on every Friday. And I would pray for the the nation. And people would be walking by me like, who is this weird kid, like praying to the flagpole. So in those years, I was ready to go. And if there had been a man in my church who was like, hey, Brad, we need to go to DC and and fight for the country. I paid for your plane ticket. Let's go. I think I would have said yes. And it, it really scared me.
0: You know, I mean, I think part of the part of the confluence there is like, is the invitation like, we need to bring Jesus, because people brought Jesus to January six. That was or you know, their understanding of Jesus, the white Christian, the white uh, uh, American, uh, straight Jesus, to January six. So if they had framed this as part of your religious fervor, I think that's the you know, I think that's the nut of it. This is what it means to be a good Christian today, and I think that's the trap. Frankly, of Christian nationalism, where someone goes from a conservative Christian, which is, by the way, anybody's right to be, and if that gives you hope and if that gives you life, great, do it. But it's where it, the the way you act this out is you go to January 6 and you you know you subvert the will of the people. I'm sure you would have gone if someone had framed it as part of your faith commitment by like by an authority. You would have gone.
1: Oh, totally. And this is where, you know, people ask me, well, what's Christian about Christian nationalism? And I say, look, if you approach me in that church and you're like, hey, we got to go defend white people. I would have looked at you like, no, I'm not doing I'm not into that. Right. But if you said, look, we've got to go pray for the country. We've got to go act and show up for for God's will. Then you've got my interest as that 19 year old who's really Mm. uh, committed Mm. to ministry or that 21 year old. If you just show up and talk to me about white nationalism, I'm not going to do it. But if you show up and say, God wants this man to be president and we have to be on the ground, and then I'm like, okay, you know what? I think I'm on board. I'll go and pray. I'll go and support. And then maybe I get caught up in the crowd and here we go. We are uh, off and running, which happened to so many people, including people from my hometown. Yeah, right. I mean,
0: I think that's, that. you know, how much are you willing to give for God?
1: Yep. You know, I mean, that's, that's right. like
0: the real like that's presented, I think, to some in some faith communities. And 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 then and then it's like, oh, you give, give your life because Jesus gave his life. And, you know, anyway, you know, it's just like it's very disturbing because it's you know, it is it, it's it's mind control and and political power um, wrapped up in faith. And this is right. what we brings us to Christian nationalism
1: and it's and, like you can uh, never and, give you can never give enough there's always more to sacrifice right
0: right yeah. and 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 by the way um you know this is ongoing i mean this is like this didn't stop after you know as you know so talk to us a little bit about about uh, how just like how you understand the history of christian nationalism as part of the america that we know i mean uh give us how far back do you go it's you know the the history you know, we're, we're kind of writing this um, because we're identifying things and giving it a name now that might might be a little new, but it's always been, there, there's been strands of it um, all the way
1: through. So t- talk to me about how you understand the history. You know, you, you said the America we know. So I start my book and I really focus on the 1960s. Uh, you know, when I was an evangelical, when I was part of the church, I mentioned we were always taught that the 1960s is when the country lost its way. The 1960s is when the sexual revolution and nuclear families all dissolved and uh, all dissolved America into this uh, chaotic uh, corrupt godless place that it is today. And we weren't the only ones. If you look at uh, recent comments by you know leaders of Focus on the Family and uh you know prominent mega church pastors, they will tell you the 60s are when it all went wrong. Well, let's let's think about that. Uh the 1960s are a time and I don't probably have to remind most people listening, but you know, real quick, civil rights movement civil rights act voting rights act immigration reform the loving case 1967 protects interracial marriage 1963 feminine mystique the late 60s uh and and mid to late 60s there's a a a movement of of mainline pastors and and uh, queer communities working together in new york city and other places and then stonewall happens all that to say a time for i think many americans of great progress if unfinished progress and yet, this is when the white Christian nationalist says, "Look, it all went wrong then." And I ask myself, "All right, so how did they how did they manifest that?" And one of the places is in uh, a, a far right extremist move in the Republican Party that eventually links up with what we know as the religious right. So, in the 1960s, for example, Barry Goldwater is the GOP candidate in 1964, and he says when he accepts the nomination, "Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice." extremism is what you need we don't need dialogue we don't need respect we don't need a middle path we need extremism to take our country back and throughout the book i kind of follow that thread and, and say this is how political operatives plus religious uh the religious right really affected a christian nationalist uh kind of takeover of the gop and led to what we are seeing today
0: yeah oh my god i mean it, it, i i th- that is such an important inflection point. I mean, you know, I, I, I just sometimes look, you know, I, there's ways to, you could start the story further back, you know, the Ku Klux yeah. Klan. Yes. There's other times when it manifested, but I think that's really helpful because for some of us, that's like, may not, not be in memory, but it's, it's basically recent history. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing, you know, if you look at what's happening right now, uh, women's rights rolled back. Queer rights rolled back an attempt to erase history with banning books, rolling back uh, race, um, you know, voting restrictions, all of these things. This is the battle. And it, and it is the 60s battle continuing. And it's 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 absolutely it's absolutely shocking. And and I think that's a helpful that's a helpful beginning. So so I want to just talk about one chapter that really made me sit up. And that was your chapter on, on purity, and it was called "Pure American Body." And honestly, like I just think this is so interesting, and it's a connection that until you wrote it, I had not made. But talk about this this idea that you have um, that that rings totally true to me.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, like many children of the '90s, uh, was a I'm a veteran of purity culture, and you know, I know many people out there will will know purity culture is that kind of movement that taught young conservative Christian kids in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s that uh, you needed to remain pure for God, which means sexual purity. Okay, so don't have sex before marriage. All right, well, that's easy enough. But if you think about sex at all, that's adultery, so don't do that. And along with this, we're going to have all of these gender roles. Uh, We're going to give you the idea that boys and men are naturally leaders, but they're aggressive and they're uh, filled with... uh, raging sexual desire and they they really have a hard time controlling it uh and nonetheless they should be in charge at home and in society and of course at church girls and women are naturally submissive they're naturally uh the kind of supportive uh partner they uh in terms of sex want sex for intimacy not for pleasure so they need to be the gatekeepers of this sexual purity and not let their uh, their Their boyfriends or fiances uh, sort of cross the line before uh, marriage and there 's this whole culture and if you 're part of this culture, you know all of the devices and the techniques and the teachings that scare you into trying to remain pure uh, before you get married and One thing that that really dawned on me as I was writing this book is that Christian nationalism is the original purity culture, and if you hang with me here. Uh, one thing that my co host Dan Miller says all the time, and he writes about this in his book, is that there's this metaphor that's been used for, for millennia of the nation or the country or the state as a body, you know, the national body. If we said, hey, what does the Canadian body look like? What is the, uh, the, the Swedish? What is the, 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 the Chinese? Well, what does the American body look like? And what, what we talk about all the time is that for the white Christian nationalists, the American body is a straight body. It's a white body. It's a body that is native born. It's a body that uh, is able bodied, probably. Uh, It speaks English as a first language, um, and it is patriarchal and Christian, right? I mean, you can imagine the kind of uh, national body that the the Christian nationalists imagines. And it kind of looks like, I don't know, a straight white American Jesus or a Donald Trump or any other sort of patriarchal conservative leader you might think of. Unfortunately, a lot of Christian nationalists, Vladimir Putin, okay? And what I realized is that purity culture in the 90s was an attempt to regulate teenage bodies in order to create a national body that looks like the ones Christian nationalists want. The idea here is if you regulate Young teenage flesh, and make it "quote unquote" pure of anything that involves uh, a queer relationship, a non-heteronormative, uh, heteronormative relationship, uh, a, a mixed family, uh, a complex family, uh, marrying those outside from immigrants or those from outside of the country from another place. Or In another some cases, religion, another yeah, religion, interfaith I marriage. Mean, it,
0: it, yeah, it's all defilement.
1: It's it's impure. Right, I mean, impure. even interracial marriage for a lot of people. Right, even interracial marriage impure. So there's all these impurities that we want to keep out of our families, and if we can keep them out of our families, we can keep them out of our churches. If we can keep out of our churches, we can keep it out of our nation. So purify the the teenage flesh, get a pure American body. That's the that's the wager, and so that's what dawned on me in that chapter, and and yeah. that's why I think Christian nationalism I, is the original purity culture.
0: Right, I mean, it, it and the idea that that there's that there is one there is purity and that you know and then also that like purity must be um protected at all costs like you know it's it's a highest virtue and uh and then and then anything foreign or you know is is a threat to purity and though must be eliminated and, and uh and and anybody who's been in that culture i mean i don't know if you've had a chance to look at john ward's a new book testimony mm-hmm. um but but he talks about how terrible that was for him And like how every, you know, all of it was so terrible and, you know, and it just diminished him uh, in in a terrible way. And he was wracked with guilt and there was no way, you know, it was just, I, I just think it's very, this is a really interesting analogy and it's another way to begin to understand in some ways what we're up against, which is like a kind, a very kind of just a a do or die um, mentality um, among Christian nationalists about, you know, what they're, what they're fighting to preserve this, this mythic thing they're trying to pervert, preserve. Um, and, you know, I think Jeff Charlotte gets at it with his great book, The Undertow, um, your book. My guest is Bradley Onishi, author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. What I like about your book is that, um, among many things, it's a national story told through a personal lens. So it has the it has the benefit of not like talking about them, but talking about something that you feel very akin to. Talk to me a little bit about how how you see Christian nationalism factoring right into our politics right now.
1: Yeah, I think I think one thing that is really important for me to emphasize is that. Yeah, uh, Christian nationalism is is more than anything it's a cultural identity. Um and the way I explain that to folks is it's a story that you tell about yourself. Oh, I'm I'm a Christian man. I'm a Christian husband and a Christian dad and I'm a Christian American. So for me it's about family, country, God. All right, that's who I am. That's the story I'm telling about how I conduct myself and how I'm raising my kids and uh you know how I spend my free time and who I support uh, politically whatever it may be. Okay, so I'm telling a story about me and I'm telling a story about my 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 country, and that's christian nationalism and I can tell that story even if I'm not somebody who goes to church twice a week or reads the Bible every morning. So Christian nationalism is really uh, quite nimble and quite agile because if you tell the story, uh, you don't have to be somebody who's tithing ten percent to a mega church on Sundays or volunteering to teach Sunday school. You can take on that cultural identity, and when you do that, you can start to see your identity as part of a movement that says, yeah, I'm scared my kids are learning woke stuff at school. So yeah, I'm going to show up at the school board meeting, and I'm going to yell about uh, all these woke books by Toni Morrison and talking about Japanese incarceration, and I want those out of here, and I'll support this movement. And yeah, I'm going to go and protest uh, Drag Queen Story Hour because kids, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. So we see the ways that Christian nationalism as a narrative can fuel political support and movements, even if you don't have people who are fully committed about getting to church every Sunday or uh, or reading the Bible every day. Now, in terms of actual just on the ground policies, I think there are so many ways that we are seeing this. So, uh, let's start in Texas. Uh, in Texas, there were numerous tragedies this past weekend here in the middle of May, and yet no no calls for for. Uh, sweeping gun reform or, or legislation. And yet there is a bill that is being put through and it may be put through already, which would list the 10 commandments on every public school classroom in Texas. Okay. And there's been some coverage of this, but not enough. So let's post the 10 commandments, uh, in every, uh, in every classroom. If you're a Hindu kid, if you're a secular kid, if you're a Muslim kid, tough luck does not matter. Um, Just uh, just yesterday, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida signed a bill that says if you're a Chinese person, uh, you cannot buy property. And especially uh, you cannot buy property in Florida near military bases or government buildings. Um, Now, there's a lot to debate there. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of real estate in this country and income inequality. But here's the thing that is on the backs of of policies. In, in Florida, where he is flying migrants to Martha's Vineyard, where he is gutting tenure, where he is banning books. When I think of those things, I come back to what we just talked about, Paul. I want a pure America. Right. I want to, I want right. to purify this nation from all the invaders and the infections and the, the diseases. And, and And that's how I think of immigrants. That's how I think of ideas I don't like. That's how I think of people from China or from Mexico. That's how I think of gay people because I'm going to pass a law. Don't say gay. Just to do with DeSantis, he, you know, with
0: this anti-DEI thing that he's, he's put across the country for all higher education, we, we had on uh, Matt Hartley, uh, who's in nor- – he's in northeast Florida at a university there. Interfaith work is all under DEI. And so he has actually seen like his work being attacked – so you're not supposed to actually have conversations between evangelical kids and Muslim kids and and Hindu kids and secular kids because that's DEI, and so it's like an it's just a frontal attack on uh, religious diversity, religious freedom, uh, in the name again I think it is of like you know we got to protect the kids, I mean protect which kids from what you know from what uh, you know so I I just really you know I think. The, the, one of the things that I feel we, we um, as those of us who, who are trying to uh, mobilize against Christian nationalism, need to be really clear to that guy who you described and say, you should be a Christian if you want to be a Christian and be a man and protect your family. Patriotism is not synonymous with nationalism. Yeah. Christianity is not synonymous with Christian nationalism. We have to allow people another avenue and say, you can be all of these things and love your family and love your faith and love your country. And actually, that should turn you away from Christian nationalism. We ha- I mean, I think the invitation has to be stronger. So I'm just wondering, like, if you could wave a magic wand for all of us to do exactly what Bradley Onishi says, <laughs> um, which I know you pine for this, what would we all be doing? In order to offset what feels like a very, I feel like we're in an existential moment for the country. What should we do? What should we focus on?
1: What I always tell folks is, look, you know, if you're like me, it's easy to consume a lot of news, a lot of tweets, uh, a lot of scrolling, especially late at night. And you can get overwhelmed. You can think about uh, everything from what's happening at the border, what's happening with DEI, what's happening with uh, trans kids and gender-affirming care, what's happening with reproductive rights, what's happening with voting rights. I mean, we can go down the list. I wish that everyone listening would sit down for a minute, take some notes and say, what is the one thing that I think that I care about, that I'm impassioned about, and I can get involved in? What is the thing that I can give time and effort and energy to starting now. And that could be any number of things. That could be supporting somebody who's going to run for a school board seat because your school board is is under threat of being taken over by Moms for Liberty and the the anti-CRT MAGA crowd. That could be supporting a county supervisor candidate. Okay, great. That could be getting involved in the fight for reproductive rights in your community. That could be running yourself for mayor. That could be Figuring out how to protect trans kids in your community. Are there networks? Are there pipelines of of safety? Are there people helping others make sure that kids are not in danger in various ways? Are there queer family uh, networks that you might plug into and support and be part of? I could go on and on and on. I think what's easy, though, especially after COVID, is to scroll, is to feel despair, but to not jump in somewhere, and I, you know, Paul, I, I saw you recently at a at a at a conference and a summit, and one of the things that is is so clear to me, and it, there's nothing profound about this. There's nothing like genius, but when we actually do things together, it feels really good, and it f- it feels hope. It feels like you know what, I'm here with other people, my body's in motion, and I feel like we can do something rather than right. being at home just feeling like the world is ending. So
0: here here's my question for you. What worries you the most right now?
1: Um, (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) there's a lot. Um, So I think what worries me the most right now is that uh, we think uh, what I get asked all the time. I speak all over the country and people say, are we going to have another civil war? And I think that uh, my answer is always we have small fires everywhere right now. This past week, you had a mass shooting in Texas. And one you know, prominent uh, right-wing figure, Megyn Kelly, said, look, stop with the debates. You're not going to win, liberals. There's not going to be gun reform because we have the Second Amendment. So let's just look for other options. And in my mind, that was such a nihilistic take. And it was such a take of defeatism that says, look, yeah, you're not going to win. That. that call to me was, was one that says it's over. You know, kids will continue to die. If you go to a mall, if you go to a parade, if you go to Walmart, if you go to church, you might be in gun danger. So what? We're not going to do anything. So let's figure something else out. My worry is that we think this is the future, that it's 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 coming uh, uh, in a year or two or three or five. There was another incident in Texas where migrants outside of a migrant center were intentionally uh, run over and I believe – and I I have to check this for sure. I believe it was half a dozen or seven people who died. That is somebody who is intentionally ending the lives of people from other countries who are here in this country for various reasons. Outside of a church,
0: outside of a Catholic church that housed them. I mean this is a – it was really an attack on, on religion, a real one. Right,
1: and and it's never framed that way. It's never right. framed as you attacked right. a, a Catholic church that has the values of welcoming others, welcoming your neighbor, welcoming the stranger, right. welcoming whoever. But that is an attack on religion, one hundred percent. And so, we have a country where you know I talked to somebody uh, in, in at a conference recently who said, "I live in South Carolina. I have a trans kid, and we have a backpack because we know that we may need to leave in the middle of the night uh, at any at any night." Uh, That's the world we live in now. Uh, We live in a world where you might get sued if you text with your friend about, uh, you know, ending an unwanted pregnancy uh, by way of uh, abortion and so on. Uh, We live in a world where you, you know, have anti-trafficking laws uh, in certain states related to reproductive rights. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Our public square at the moment is one where there are battles everywhere. And because it's not North versus South, it's easy to be like, no, no civil war. It's, uh, we had January 6th and that happened. We haven't seen anything like that yet. So I don't know. You know, let's just see what happens. Things. I'm tired. It's been a long couple of years. Uh, you know, that's all in the future. And that that worries me a lot because I think that we're not ready to confront the like it's not a – it's it's not a one battle line uh, north versus south. It is hundreds of small fires everywhere raging right. from Georgia right. to California to Idaho to uh, to I mean, I just got emails from a friend in Amherst, Mass., who's like, here is uh, an attack on trans kids and, and people getting dead naming. And if anybody knows Amherst, Mass., it's like one of the most liberal right. lefty parts of the right. country. And I'm getting those emails from there. So,
0: yeah. No, I mean we. I live in Chelsea, New York, and we have protests against uh, drag queens um, in Chelsea. I, you know, and so you know. any okay. So we're okay. We're this is the nadir. Uh, we're going to go to the zenith. What gives you hope? Like, what what are you hopeful for? What is what's the source of that hope? And 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 how can we fuel that hope?
1: I, what gives me hope is that if you. If you visit places that seem like they are the the places that are most uh in in dire need of of some kind of glimmer of light, that is where people are organizing. that is people are working together. You talked about Fresno and the, these coalitions of interfaith leaders. You know, I talked to one student leader who's uh, of Indian descent and yet is working with black clergy uh, in in Nashville. Um, to form coalitions around gun violence and, uh, the you know, all stemming from the expulsion of the Tennessee 2. And so uh, when you go across the country, there are people who realize that this is an existential fight for what we call American democracy. And that gives me hope. And I think that it's again, once again, if you're sitting home at Twitter and just scrolling, you're probably very unlikely to see that. But if you actually get involved anywhere, whether it's Chelsea, New York, Washington, D.C., whether it's you know uh, Baton Rouge or, or Albuquerque or Fresno uh, or Portland, you're going to see that there are people who care so much about a world that is inclusive, that is full of equality and liberty for everyone and who want to create a future that's based on this American experiment. So that is happening. And if you're not seeing it, I would say get out to a place where you can and where you can be involved because it will give you hope too, even as we face a future that is uncertain.
0: Dr. Bradley Onishi teaches and researches Christian nationalism, the history of evangelicalism, race, and racism in American religion, gender, sex, masculinity, and secularism and secularity. He's the host of the very popular Straight White American Jesus podcast, now in its fifth year. His books include The Sacrality of the Secular, Postmodern Philosophy of Religion, and most recently, Preparing for War. The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Brad, thank you so much for joining me on State of Belief Radio.
1: I really like talking to you, and I'm looking forward to all the work we can do together. I'm so thankful to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me, and I really appreciate you. Coming up next, Isaac Sharp the author of a new book, The Other
0: Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. Dr. Isaac P. Sharp is Director of Online and Part-Time Programs and Visiting Assistant Professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, my alma mater, last month. Isaac published his new book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Isaac, it is great to have you with us on State of Belief
2: Radio. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, I'm excited for the opportunity to chat about the book and to uh, chat again uh, with Paul after having uh, worked (laughs) together on various projects over the years.
0: And. The Other Evangelicals debuts at number one on Amazon for books on sociology and religion. You are a star. Um, (laughs) Let's start with this title, which is not known for its brevity, but its inclusiveness. Introduce, first of all, yourself and why this book?
2: The most direct answer is it came out of my dissertation. A bit of a longer backdrop is that it Grew out of exploration that I had done over the years during my own MDiv. I have an MDiv from uh, Mercer University, uh, where I worked with David Gushy, uh, who was my advisor at um, Mercer in the MDiv program. And then I worked for him for the Center for Theology and Public Life for a year before I started my PhD. During that time period, he and I worked together on a book uh called Evangelical Ethics, a reader in evangelical ethics, and it's a selection of various kinds of um influential uh, thinkers in the across the twentieth century in American evangelical space and those specifically who focused on you know social, ethical, personal, moral issues. And in the beginnings of working on that book, and in working closely with uh, my friend and mentor David Gushy, I began thinking through these questions of of what it means in contemporary context to say yes, I am an evangelical, or who is an evangelical, or who's not an evangelical. And one of the interesting right. places yeah. that the, that it most directly became a question was as um, David Gushy and I were working on that book, making decisions about who. Who goes in a book like that and who doesn't go in a book like that? And some of that, re- some of that research uh, for me began the process of asking this question of who gets counted as evangelical and not, and the kind of discovery that I think that there's a story there that generally isn't told in the popular and scholarly sources about evangelicalism.
0: Yeah, well, it's, you know... It's interesting. When I read that title, I was like, huh. And I was curious, like, would Walter Rauschenbusch be included as an evangelical? Because certainly in his mind, he was. But then almost he became um, the, the kind of flashpoint for deciding what isn't an evangelical. Although he, you know, he wrote a book called Christianizing the Social Order, something that he, you know, you wouldn't want to get away with today. I mean, it is. And he worked with Moody and he was very interested in the prayers and the hymnody and all of that. And yet, no, he's like the opposite of an evangelical today. He's like, we're not evangelical. So it is, it is interesting, like, who doesn't qualify. I, I often say today, like, the only way anyone can claim being an evangelical today if, is if they say they're anti-gay. Or they're anti-abortion. Like that's like they're that like that's the thing that allows you to continue to be in the club. The moment you step over the line, you're not uh, part of the club. You can prove me wrong, but like you know, do, I all I'm saying I'm I'm entering into the conversation that you entered into more fulsomely with this book.
2: Yes, and Walter Rauschenbusch is a prime example of something that I argue happened historically. And what happened historically, I argue, is that the evangelical label was more in flux for a longer period of time than folks realize. So into the 20th century with the fundamentalist modernist controversies and these fights over who is in and out of various American denominations and this you retroactively get this split between the liberal mainline and the conservative evangelical. The This is the so-called two-party thesis in American Protestantism. And historically, then the idea is that never the twain then meet. They go their separate directions. And it's really interesting that it's, it's more complicated than that. There are these figures back there in the story who considered themselves evangelical. And, and what they would have meant by that would be various things. But in some cases, at least it's Faithfulness to the gospel, right? They would say I am a I may be a progressive on economic issues, or I may be a, a theological liberal, meaning that I accept Darwinian evolution or higher critical methodologies, but I that doesn't in their telling these liberal evangelicals, but that doesn't make me any less faithful to the gospel. And part of what I was doing in the dissertation, the book with that chapter in particular is saying that story of these folks. Who are these early progenitors of the what becomes, you know, kind of the other direction in American Protestantism are lost from the stories specifically around evangelical identity when they considered themselves evangelicals and faithful to the gospel. And it's just this like fascinating piece of the story that really gets left out. On the other end, the anti gay piece, any number of these chapters could be the most controversial. But number one on the liberal evangelicals and the last chapter on gay evangelicals are definitely in the running for the most controversial.
0: I do think that this is a it's a really interesting and important book for right now, because almost evangelical has lost its meaning. I don't even know what we mean anymore by evangelical. And almost it's become a political category uh, more than it is a descriptive of a certain stance towards religion all these different categories of people who have been pushed out of uh, being able to claim that label. It's all about politics and it's about other things outside, uh, uh, perhaps outside of the gospel. So I'm just curious how you feel about that.
2: Yes. So part of the argument that I am setting out in the book is that evangelical identity over the course of the 20th century and, and into the dawn of the 21st century took on these certain connotations. And that part of how it took on these connotations is by gatekeeping by these because evangelicalism is this kind of nebulous thing that doesn't have an official roster of members like a denomination does, or an officially recognized uh, singular leader um, who everyone can point to as like that person is the head of evangelicalism although Billy Graham could vie for that category uh, could vie for that unofficial title in the 20th century context but part of what I'm arguing is that because of that kind of nebulous movement that changes and shifts over time that across the 20th century you get This periodic thing that happens where these folks who built this movement um, of generally theologically conservative Protestants um, have to deal with the fact that there is internal pluralism in in building a coalition of, of generally conservative Protestants. There's an internal pluralism that's going on. And what regularly happens that I end up arguing in the book um, is these there are folks who say yes, I believe X Y Z theological tenet that you say is the requirement to be called evangelical. You know, a focus on the the Bible, uh, belief in the in the authority of Scripture, whatever the the changing qualifications are. You get these folks who say yes, I agree with that, but I vote Democrat, or I am a feminist, or I interpret you know those few the quote unquote clobber passages in the in the uh, Christian scriptures that folks usually interpret as referring to homosexuality or i interpret those passages differently but i still hold to the authority of scripture and so these folks that that i end up talking about in the book many of them said and grew up and spent their lives or chose later at some point to move among the religious community called evangelical because it's what they the it's where they believed they belonged in in a line with a theology and then there would be one thing there would be some extra little qualification that would get paraded out by gatekeepers and they would say ah but that's a you know you agree to all these points but if you vote this way or you think that about feminism or or you're gay or you're black there's something else all of a sudden that becomes an extra requirement and Mm. when folks ran afoul of those um of the gatekeepers they got written out of the history books such that mm. you never hear about um, these black evangelical, this black evangelical movement or the evangelical feminist movement or that there were gay evangelicals because these folks have gotten written out of the story.
0: Right. Well, and, the, you know, you, you kind of you think of movements like the Southern Baptist takeover in the late 70s, which was like a very it was a big power play. I mean, it was like. Women, you know, women preaching, women teaching, you know, like, you know, and and it was, that was like an accepted part of of what, like, it was to be a Southern Baptist was that, and then all of a sudden it was like, nope, and then they got kicked out. And so it, it's, it, it is like... When you say gatekeepers, it's that's that's a, you know what it also is is like evictors, you know what I mean like people who literally will say you no longer are welcome here, and you think about the damage that does to the people who are evicted, and then how the paucity of who remains, you know what I mean like that's like the other part of the story. It's like the you know it's terrible for people to get kicked out of church. It's a damaging, traumatic. But then you think about oh well, what are you left with, and you know this idea of like this purity or this like, and and then and then you're always fearful. Are you going to be the
2: next? Yeah, I I just think it sounds like a horror show. It is definitely the case. The part the part of the argument that I end up making is that you get these power brokers, gatekeepers, often self-appointed in evangelical spaces across the 20th century and into the 21st century who draw, who end up drawing a tighter and tighter circle around uh, who is in and who's out. And part of the argument I end up making is that they, they, these folks end up remaking evangelical identity in their own image, such Mm. that the only people who are left, who are the official safe, um, recognized evangelicals whose credentials aren't challenged are those who uh, look, think, act, vote—literally uh, look like uh, white, straight, uh, Calvinist uh, Republicans—and that they're. <laughs> well, we just they- talked
0: to we just talked to uh, Brad Onishi, who has this great podcast, "Straight White American Jesus." You know, it's it is. Uh, I mean, that's what it is, honestly. And everybody else is there if you can adopt that identity you know i mean like you know this is like it is uh it, it is interesting and i it just seems like um it seems like you're you're putting a lot of people in like this no man's land of like you know i know a lot i mean you think about the movement like um the gay church like the metropolitan gay church that if you've ever been to one of them like for me as i grew up kind of liberal protestant and i go in there i'm like what evangelical like uh, it just happens to all be gay guys and and gay women and 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 uh, bisexual and transgender uh, but the 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 fervor is very evangelical it just so happens that they they were all evicted And so, um, you know, so so it's just it's interesting. You could like this is something that is in people's blood. And yet they can't, um, you know, they they are they're not able to stay in their broader community. And so they have to leave and they find other community. Um, And again, what's left is loses out because there's like deep spirituality and and power in these various communities that that have been kicked out.
2: Uh, And and I think it's sad. And the uh, yes, and the m c c the metropolitan community churches are uh, a piece of this story in a in a very concrete way because of the very reason that you're that you're talking about the there are there the emergence of the m c c is this in in certain iterations of it from i didn't get to talk too much about this in the book, but I do mention a little bit I think where the certain congregations of uh, Metropolitan Community Church, just right, it is like a, a very evangelical and or sometimes Pentecostal flavor right. to some of them. That uh, right, that it is the case that you have these folks who say this is how we want to be in religious community and worship. We don't want necessarily want to go down the street to the liberal mainline church that would, you know, fly the gay flag. And that is a, that's a piece of this story. That's a piece of the 20th century American Christian story that, that is really not told enough. I think somebody like uh, Troy Perry is a fascinating example of this. I could have included, uh, I think I included some mention of Troy Perry in the book, but not a, a profile. There needs to be more historical work on Troy Perry as somebody who was like, yeah, I'm evangelical. Oh, hardcore. and I'm gay, I, and, there's, and if you've and ever heard him preach, you're like, is. "Okay,
0: here comes the, here comes the spirit." Um, you know, one thing that that is uh, a part of this story and is how you view uh, the salvific power of other traditions. Like I, I one of the you know one of the things that I get I've written about because I have Jewish cousins, and I've written uh, publicly like if. If heaven doesn't include my Jewish cousins, I don't want to go there. I think that that's another element of like the evangelical: like you can't allow for the fact that people might get redemption or enlightenment or um, fulfillment, true fulfillment, honest fulfillment, and respect that fulfillment, and remain an evangelical that thinks everyone who isn't saved exactly in the way you're saved is going is going to hell.
2: This thing around interfaith work also, though, is a piece of the story where – there is something going on in evangelical circles, spe- specifically explicitly in the 20th century, that is a rejection of a certain kind of interfaith engagement. The interesting thing that happens with the emergence of the official evangelical organizations like the National Association of Evangelicals and Christianity today is, in fact, that those organizations are ex- were explicitly predicated on the idea that the ecumenical movement is a you know liberal, backsliding, dangerous thing that is watering down true doctrine for the sake of uh, ecumenical cooperation. And you get this uh, rejection of that as very foundational to 20th century evangelical identity, where you have these organizations that say all those liberals that are in charge of all the main denominations are joining in even cross denominational work are joining in cross denominational work and they're watering down the gospel. And that yeah. is a, it's a strong preventative to certain kinds of interfaith conversations. For sure. For
0: sure. I mean, it's interesting. Like when I was at Princeton running interfaith, you know, interfaith work at Princeton, um, Often the evangelicals wanted to be there because they actually really liked talking to people who took religion seriously. So I think that there's, you know, manifestations of that in in different ways. My guest is Isaac Sharp, author of The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. I just think the political aspect of evangelicalism is really... Fascinating. And here you have like the figure of Jimmy Carter, uh, who is probably the most serious evangelical we've had. Like I mean, but you know, this is this gets to your point. You know, if if you if you talk to him, he will talk about Jesus. I mean, he's like a serious dude as far as evangelical. Um and I think maybe the first time he ran people were like thinking they should support him, and then they flipped. And they go to Reagan, and and then since that time, it's been anathema. I mean, Barack Obama had a little moment, but not really, not really. Um, you know, and so then you you find this. I just find it so strange. I mean, we just you know, Donald Trump just was convicted of sexual assault, um, and and yet the only response is like, oh, this is terrible that that woman would do this to him. And 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 then you think, well, what, what kind of morality are you actually working with here? Uh, I, I find this like one of the most mystifying things about the modern evangelical reality. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what that like involves, and and why why that has become so hardened in our current moment.
2: That's yes. So the that's a big piece of the puzzle that, and the chapter that I have specifically on the evangelical left is it retraces some of this, right. And how this happens, you get, you get Jimmy Carter come on the scene and all of a sudden he's talking about having born, you know, been born again. And and then all of a sudden there are uh journalists everywhere trying to figure out what that means and who are all these born again folks and then then shortly after uh Carter's election the, the you know this is the 76 and they you have the pollsters start saying things like this is the year of the evangelical you very quickly on the heels of that get the rise of the religious right and by the time the 80s are in full swing it is becoming evangelical identity is becoming closer and closer linked to specifically partisan politics. Over time, I I would argue that even one of the most determinative aspects of contemporary evangelical identity by by this point, let's say by now in the contemporary 21st century context is is that that partisan alignment such that I I argue and I think I even say explicitly in the book that you can make a strong argument that evangelical is a kind of identity politics. It's a, it's a white identity. It's an identity politics for white conservative religious folks. And how that happened is specifically, I argue in the book, a, one of the ways that you can see how that happens is by tracing the emergence which actually predated the religious right of this robust, politically progressive evangelical movement that also historically gets forgotten a lot in the history books. And part of what I argue is that what happened in part with the rise of the religious right is you get folks like Jerry Falwell who define evangelical identity in a certain kind of way, and they consistently undermined and denigrated, and challenged the religious credentials of progressive evangelical figures. Within evangelicalism, they had this uphill battle where every time they would say, we believe in Jesus, we affirm the authority of the Bible, and when we read the Bible, we see that you are supposed to care about the poor, and that translates for us into progressive politics, such that to be evangelical, to be faithfully evangelical in the in some of the minds of these evangelical left figures requ- sometimes would require voting against the Republican Party. And they had their work cut out for them because the religious right was such a formidable force and was so well-funded and so well-organized that it steamrolled them. Part of what I end up arguing, though, is that one of the really effective rhetorical tactics that folks like Jerry Falwell used was casting aspersions on folks like Jim Wallace and their religious identity. You get these interviews uh, over a couple of them with Jerry Falwell, where he says things about Jim Wallace, like quote, Jim Wallace is about as evangelical as an Oak tree, uh, which is, it's like weird. Right. I don't even know right. exactly what that means, but the rhetorical move is to say, because his politics is progressive, he obviously can't be an evangelical. And that was a powerful rhetorical move, yeah in the kind of public yeah story.
0: well, I mean, but that's exactly what you're saying. it's excluding him I remember the the way I met Brian McLaren was that some um some kind of right wing evangelicals called him warmed over Rauschenbush, which was the worst. Yeah. Uh, worst uh, um, insult, insult you right. could possibly imagine and 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 then we kind of like we were kind of like oh well as long as we're you're warmed over raushan and i'm left over raushan bush we might as well have a conversation and and i actually like you know i remember a, a fellow i think his name is tim Tut, uh tuttle or something like that he wrote a book called Eve, you know he he discovered Walter Rauschenbusch he was an e- hardcore evangelical and actually a uh, um an evangelical kind of rock star i mean he had like a christian rock band and then he read raauschenbusch was like wait this is like exactly how i feel you know what i mean and because he has very religious language you know what i mean and uh and then he was like okay where do i go with this and i and i think it was very interesting for me to see young evangelicals people who you know this kind of emergent church m- movement for a while and things like that. The Shane Claiborns of the world, who was on this show recently, who are amazing. And I would call them evangelical in part just because they worship slightly in a different way and they like, you know, kind of preach the gospel in a way that I, I wasn't really raised to do in the same, you know, in the same tenor. Um, I still consider, like Shane, one of the major evangelicals of American Christianity right now. Uh, William Barber as well. I mean, you know, these are people who have deep, deep roots um, and they're and they, you know, they can talk about Jesus and you're like, well, I'm, sign me up. Uh, and uh, But... They're also doing it in a context of respect for other religious traditions, uh, respect for people who are different from themselves, and in a, in a posture of learning and, and welcoming and building community. Um, so, for you, looking at that story, looking at where evangelicals are in the political cosmology that is so crazy right now, um, what do you? What gives you hope about the movements? that you see
2: right now in the conclusion i don't do too much prognosticating except to suggest that even that this story that i'm telling it's my read of what it means for contemporary folks who are interested in challenging what it means to be evangelical is that they have their work cut out for them because the powers that be are doubling down on defining this this narrow narrowly so for instance though there are it does seem like we are in an inflection point post-2016 where uh, a lot of folks in evangelical spaces or in christianity more broadly um, have looked and said something is off with this whole thing and they are questioning what they're questioning the religious community that They were brought up in and a lot of it's generational, although not purely where you get younger, a group of younger evangelicals or ex or now post evangelical, you know, whatever the labels that folks want to use for that, who are saying things like you taught me XYZ about Jesus, the Bible, faith, ethics, personal morality that matters. And now it seems like that rings hollow in light of these political commitments and this falling in line behind Donald Trump. And so there is a it feels to me we are at, at an inflection point where people who otherwise might not have are asking hard questions about their mm. faith, their faith communities and what it means. And uh, this is there are several folks who are doing this kind of work around I um Offering space for those people who maybe are questioning the political aspects of their faith community, but they're not sure what, what they're not sure what's next or where to go yeah. next or what it means to be a person who you know some of the some folks end up you know it's the, the, going from that period of questioning and saying, well, maybe I'm an atheist or maybe I'm agnostic or maybe i'm I'm not really a Christian at all. But, to your point around uh, the earlier point you made about um, one thing that has happened with evangelicalism, I think that it was an effective kind of p r campaign in some ways is evangelical leaders and the evangelical movement were really successful at making it seem like they're the only Christian game in town that they mm. just are the true Christians, yeah, and there are you know that's the a flattening of the rich diversity of the the christian tradition is complex and even the yeah. evangelical tradition is complex what what's the
0: connection between what we're calling white christian nationalism and this um remnant that is the core of what people call evangelical today
2: are those synonymous so that that is an interesting question because it's a uh there's The white christian nationalism thing is such a fascinating piece of this puzzle in that it feel it is a new language in some ways to name an old thing right there is because some of the stuff that the and that's not to and that's not to you know cast any aspersions on the folks who are doing the work the sociologists or authors who are writing on this stuff i think they're doing really important work but it is interesting the the evolution of the terminology because stuff around um, white Christian nationalism definitely would have been there in the ether decades ago, right? This is the the stuff that is the God and c- country alignment with Christianity, meaning you know Christianize this nation and make the make the nation Christian again, turn back to God. That stuff goes all the way back to the religious right, and that stuff has been there for a long time. Oh. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, you could argue that it's, you know, goes back to Ku Klux Klan in 1920s and, you know, you can you can take it way, way back. Um, It is interesting that it's like we're naming something. And I guess like I guess it's a Venn diagram, but it seems like almost at this point, the kind of remnant of evangelicalism that you describe after pushing everyone else out and what we would call Christian nationalism are almost one to one
2: in some ways, what I am trying to do with the book is say this story about how evangelicalism became what it is, is more complicated. So we think we know who the evangelicals are. And in some ways we, we do, we know who the capital E official evangelicals are. They are those who look, think, believe, vote like these gatekeepers. And yet it still is some, in some ways is more complicated than that, where there are folks out there, I think who would, who would end up checking a lot of the evangelical boxes who are trying to push back on this stuff, right? I also think of somebody like Beth Moore, who would check oh, yeah. all of the boxes and yet has effectively been pushed out of official evangelical rosters because of her willingness to challenge uh, the alignment with Donald Trump. That is yeah. a really interesting thing to me, right? Like that, we, right. it is an interesting thing where. Those who would check, who would be able to check every box that anybody could throw at them to say, you're, are you an evangelical or not? Even some of them are getting pushed, you know, pushed to the margins of this thing. Well,
0: yeah. And it's interesting. I think it's almost now like, do you support Donald Trump? And like people who, 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 who said, I won't support Donald Trump before and who have flipped, I think Albert Moeller or, you know, from the Southern Baptist, you know, um, these are people who said, never, never, never. And now they're like, yeah, actually, I changed my mind. I'm uh, you know, definitely behind Donald Trump. And now they're welcome back in. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, talk about the courage of your convictions. Uh, anyway, right. uh, you you're, know, you're watching, this is... you're watching
2: it happen in real- In some ways, it's the story I'm telling you, you can watch it happen in real time where right. somebody somebody goes out on a limb on a certain position. Usually it's a political or social issue, you know, gay marriage or- a presidential election. And then all of a sudden the gatekeepers come storming the gates. This is, you know, what,
0: what you've offered is really focusing on evangelicalism and, and how we imagine what this term that gets thrown around a lot, what it means today, what it can mean, and also the broad history of what it was and who gets to decide who gets to call themselves that. Uh, Going forward, like, you know, if journalists are listening to this or people who tell stories or preach, when we use that term, maybe add a few more words to describe what you actually mean by that. Don't default like, you know, and I'm guilty of this, too. Evangelical means white male, uh, Protestant, um, straight, all of those things. There's lots of people out there who do not identify that way and who understand themselves to be evangelical in the... Maybe it's the small E rather than the big E at this point. You know, Dr. Isaac Sharp is director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He is co-editor of Evangelical Ethics, a Reader as well as Christian Ethics in Conversation. His important new book is The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. It's really fun to talk to you, and congratulations on your book.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was uh, good, and maybe we will uh, have to have another follow-up conversation one of these days about... Uh, where Rauch and Bush and the the Social Gospel fits in all this, uh, we touched on it, but there's a lot there's a lot to discuss there too. So yeah, thanks thanks for having me, Paul.
0: And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at State of That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.